Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special podcast on 2012, the new Roland Emmerich film about the end of the world. So joining me today are John Swansburg, Slate's culture editor. Hey, John. Hey, good to be here. And from D.C., we have Dan Coyce. Hey, Dan. Hey, how are you guys? And Dan is a contributor on film to The Washington Post, to True Slant, and to uh, the New York magazine culture blog, Vulture. So, Dan, thanks for joining us from D.C. My pleasure. All right, so... um. 2012, you guys. Let's let's start from the uh, beginning, which is the end of the world, and uh, and try to get through a plot summary of this immense, sprawling epic of destruction. Um, so the the title. Let's start with the title, John. Why 2012? Right. So um, <clears throat> my understanding is that the um, the Mayans uh, foresaw that the world would end in 2012. Although I thought that this movie was going to be more about that Mayan ancient Mayan prediction, it really dispenses with it very quickly. Like they. There's like, like one or two people say, you know, the Mayans saw this coming and, and uh, predicted that the, the world would end. But in fact, it, the world isn't, doesn't end because of some like weird uh, Mayan hex or, or it doesn't really have There's anything to do with the There's nothing occult about it, right? No, I no. mean, the Mayans happened to have predicted it because their calendar ended in the year 2012. And so conspiracy th- I guess conspiracy theorists have long assumed that that means it's the end of the world or something. But except for a vague shot of a background ziggurat, there's no Mayan hocus pocus at all. Right. It's, it's purely a, a geological and maybe cosmological uh, result. I mean, I, the, the science is very baffling. Maybe we should try to describe it. I, I don't really un- pretend to understand it at all. Yeah, I had assumed that this movie would begin with shots of half-clad ancient Mayans prophesying that someday John Cusack would have to dive in the ocean in an attempt to save his family from the end of the world. But <laughs> right, like, that kind doesn't of like Mel Gibson-style Mayan mumbo-jumbo. Right. right. So the science as it's described is that... Um, uh, unexpectedly intense solar flares um, cause the neutrinos that are regularly sent into the Earth's core by solar activity to mutate into a new kind of nuclear particle that behaves like microwaves. Oh my god, that is so well summarized. <laughs> yeah, that's I can't believe your grasp on the pseudoscience. And therefore heats up the Earth's core, melting the crust and causing immense tectonic shift. And the wow. microwave thing, John and I were commenting afterwards, the microwave thing in a crazy way makes sense because for some reason the Earth's core is heated to boiling, but the Earth's crust remains the same. So you can just sort of be walking along in Santa Monica and suddenly a geyser of magma will shoot up in front of you. Right. There's no right. indication other than the cracks that, that start forming everywhere that, that anything is amiss. So it's sort of like a microwave oven making like the butter inside a chicken Kiev patty really, really hot, but the chicken <laughs> remains just sort of room temperature. So, okay, so the first shot that we get in the movie, besides the solar flares bursting off the surface of the sun, is of um, of Chiwetel Ejiofor, whose pronunciation of his name I just had to look up online, um, the British-Nigerian actor, sitting in the back of a cab reading Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. I scribbled that title down because I thought, this is an odd detail that we're seeing this geologist, <laughs> this crack geologist reading this piece of medieval philosophy, but it ends up being sort of perfect for his character and, and great for the movie. So Chiwetel is on his way to visit his geologist or something geologist physicist friend in India who is the, for some reason the only person who knows about this mutant microwave phenomenon that's about to take place right he seems to basically have uh, not only like a 10,000 foot deep copper mine but also a particle accelerator in order to or like some kind of camera to allow him to take shots of neutrinos in action um, and he alerts Chuatel Gia for uh, of the uh, of the upcoming danger. And then we're then treated to a great scene of Chiwetel in Washington telling Oliver Platt, who plays some kind of White House official. Is it ever made exactly clear? It's yeah, clear we were saying like, chief of staff, maybe? he's Or, or like um, national security advisor, maybe? 
Right. Or chief science officer or maybe vice president. Who knows? It's never really made clear. But he somehow at a party. Oh, it can't be the vice president because we'll get to the chain of command scene. Oh, right, right. That's right. So not the vice president, but some kind of high level advisor. Um, And he shows him a sheaf of papers at a black tie party. And it has one of those great scenes that you always get in movies like this where Oliver Platt is, you know, first he's like, what is this, a geology crisis? And then he reads the papers and in like 10 seconds flat, his face changes to dead serious and he says, are you ready to meet the president? And then they like go off to meet the president. Right. And we should say that this is all taking place in 2010, if I'm not mistaken. Like this is The movie starts two years before the right. autonomous uh, year. And the, that's important because the idea is that um, after the Chuatel character figures this out and alerts the you know higher uh, echelons of the U.S. government, there are uh, there is a plan put in motion to uh, in you know in reaction to the fact that we now know the world is essentially uh, has a you know sell by date of two years from now. Right, and this is sort of the first way in which this movie diverges substantially from like the the Roland Emmerich and Roland and quasi Roland Emmerich disaster uh plot which is that in most cases like in independence day or in um especially in the day after tomorrow there's long scenes of like scientists or crackpots or whoever desperately trying to make the people in charge understand uh the danger that they're in and the being dismissed and no one ever knowing what's going to happen until it's too late um but in this movie uh everyone just believes Chuetelogia for and um and they enact a plan right away to save humanity or at least the portion of humanity that can afford to pay a billion dollars each for tickets on escape ships. Right. And so they build these. I don't know how many spaceships, like eight or nine spaceships. I think there are eight. Yeah. That are gonna well, we're we're led to believe that there's spaceships throughout. Um, but one of the spoilers that we'll reveal, and bear in mind, listeners, that we're going to be spoiling this movie, um, one of the one of the things that happens toward the end of the movie is that we discover, belatedly, that what we'd assume to be spaceships all the way through are, in fact, arcs, literal arcs, enormous uh, steel-plated ships meant to sail rough seas. But they are actually spaceships as well, aren't they? Or they were they on the water that whole time? I no, pictured no, they're... them hovering above the Earth somewhere. No, no, they're nope. definitely just uh, they're just nautical. Oh vessels. well, I missed a major plot point. I mean, when they say they're not spaceships, they're arcs. I thought that that was the symbolic function of the arc that was being stressed there because they had zebras and giraffes in them and stuff. <laughs> no, they're they're literal arcs, as in uh, they're meant to float above the water. That was one of my favorite twists in this movie. That um. That uh, what I believe to be like every world-ending story, you know, that humanity would set off in spaceships to some distant land was, in fact, just basically a retelling of, you know, the Noah story, except with a lot more people and a lot more action. But why not just sell them to people? (laughs) (laughs) Why not just sell them to people who were buying the billion-dollar tickets as arcs then? I mean, why say they're going to float above the Earth when they weren't going to float above the Earth? I don't don't think that they – I think that misinformation came from Woody Harrelson that they yes. were, that they were spaceships. I, I think that the the people who were buying tickets understood them to be arcs that would that the, essentially the world the globe would be covered entirely by water after this cataclysm, and so that they they needed to be able to float until the waters receded and land. You know, there was they could you know at the end the Cape of Good Hope starts to reappear and they right. can sail for the land and start civilization over. So let's catch our listeners up a little bit. So Woody Harrelson plays a, a crackpot radio host who is one of the few people not in the inner circle of government and bazillionaires to understand what's about to happen. Um, and he 
tells John Cusack, who plays a down-on-his-luck uh, novelist turned limo driver, um, everything he knows one weekend in Yellowstone where John Cusack has gone with his uh, children, um, whom he's taken for a weekend in Yellowstone. Um, John Cusack doesn't believe him at first, but when um, shit starts hitting the fan, he puts two and two together. One of those twos is Woody Harrelson's prophecies, and the other two is the fact that his Russian oligarch boss... Um, is leaving on a plane really, really fast. And his kids say, we're going on a ship and you're going to die. Um, and John <laughs> Cusack figures out this is what's happening. Something's going on. The world is going to collapse. He grabs his estranged wife. He grabs her new husband, um, a uh, plastic surgeon played by Tom McCarthy. Um, his, the wife is played by Amanda Pete and he grabs his two kids and they take off on an, a globe spanning adventure, mostly involving um planes that take off from runways mere seconds before the entire <laughs> runway crumbles. And we shouldn't forget also the plot thread in which Danny Glover is the president in this kind right. of Obamian nod, John and I were saying, that there's a there's a, a black president and there's also the future is going to end up being in Africa, right? They right. end up starting the new world in Africa. Um, right. And, um, and so at some point in the movie, Danny Glover is essentially crushed by the by USS. the uh, USS J- uh, John F. Kennedy, which is a, a, an aircraft carrier. I mean, Emmerich has uh, obviously has famously blown up the White House before, so you know, he he had to come up with some way of uh, taking out that structure in a, in a new way. And I thought this one was was, was pretty novel. I, you know, I guess as a result of the uh, tectonic uh, shifting, there's these massive tsunamis. So this huge wave just. Um, Emerges. I don't know why the USS JFK was like hanging out outside of you know the Potomac, it's in, but it's in Chesapeake Bay. It's docked in Chesapeake Bay. Oh, is it? Ah, oh, yes. There, there so verisimilitude. There you sense. go. Yep. Not um, a, not a thing about this movie is outlandish or implausible. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's verisimilitude is very impressive. Um, so anyway, yeah. So that uh, comes hurtling towards um, Pennsylvania Avenue and, and takes out Danny Glover with it. Um, well, you know, it's funny you guys joke about the verisimilitude of this movie, but one of the great pleasures of it is that, on its own ridiculous, skewed pseudoscientific terms, uh, it does basically do every. It does have a great deal of integrity to its crackpot premise, which is to say, um, if you were to believe that such a ridiculous thing would happen, in fact. Yellowstone National Park would blow up into a supervolcano with an explosion the size of like 20 megaton nuclear bombs. Right. And, and California would basically split off from the rest of the U.S. Right, before right. any and, other part. And slide into the sea and tidal waves would drench the Himalayas. And, you know, and so the, one of the things that I so enjoy about movies like this um, is a total commitment to the pseudoscience behind it. And this movie shows that like almost no other. I mean, to the point of constantly showing scientists for being forced to revise and re-revise their time estimates based on new data. Um, and like long scenes of people anxiously awaiting calculations coming out of a computer. And, you know, I eat that stuff up. Um, yeah, that is a good point. It is funny how often um, our scientist hero is wrong right. about about what he's predicting. You mean Chiwetel? Chiwetel, yeah. I mean, he like he he was predicting, you know, when exactly the water is going to reach the arcs, and he just he's made a basic um, uh, error in his calculations at one point. And I think there are a couple other times where he has gotten information wrong. That is a kind of a nice right. um, the idea that he you know that he would have somehow known the exact second that this was going to happen does seem you know a level of implausibility that the movie doesn't want, and that's that's kind of a nice thing. Although 
Although I would also say that while it does, while the movie does make some uh, some nice nods at, at uh, trying to be realistic or sticking to its its ridiculousness um, in a in a uh, nice coherent way, there's also a sense in which our heroes are always escaping just ahead of cataclysm. That is, you know, I mean, it's what you expect in a movie like this, but it starts to to strain credulity even within the context of this movie. I mean, the number of times that they, like, as you said before, take off a plane right before uh, the runway disappears, or they drive their car, you know, through a, between two falling buildings right before they crash. It's just it starts to get a little silly. Well, and the body count around them is getting to be so absurd. I mean, it's just literally at some moments people are falling like lemmings off of cliffs, basically, <laughs> right. and just hurling themselves into voids. And, and yet, John Cusack, for no apparent reason, he's not a particularly impressive physical specimen, or you know, <laughs> there's nothing about him that would lead us to believe that you know somehow he would have this magical driving ability. Right. But um, but the movie forces you to believe it. But I like okay, to imagine that um that everywhere in the world there were people who were following similar paths to John Cusack and his family that would possibly take them them to those arcs and safety but somewhere along the way they made a misstep and like t- their plane their second plane took off 3 seconds late and they died or they didn't <laughs> drive past the donut they got crushed by the donut and they died right. and so yeah. like John Cusack just hap- right John Cusack just happens luckiest. to be the one who just happened to have everything go right and that's the one family out of you know 20 zillion on earth who actually made it to china all the other non-rich families died well i want to i want to i want to get to the movie's vague stabs at having a social conscience (laughs) the, the gleeful way that it abandons them all but i think we should take a break for a word from our sponsor first So as regular listeners know, Slate has a deal with Audible.com, the leading provider of audiobooks on the web, where if you sign up for their service through our website, which is www.audiblepodcast.com slash spoiler, you'll get a free audiobook along with your membership. And you can hang on to that audiobook even if you decide not to remain a member. Um, But I think that you will remain a member because they have fabulous things like, John, let me throw it to you for the recommendation. Uh, sure. So um, the recommendation for today we thought uh, was an apt one. Uh, we are recommending um, T.S. Eliot reading his own poem, um, The Wasteland, which is a, a pretty apocalyptic uh, poem. And if you've never heard uh, Eliot read it himself, uh, you are really in for a treat. He has a sort of wonderful uh, way of intoning uh, the poem and uh, occasionally singing uh, little ditties that are threaded throughout the poem. And um, we think that uh, it's, a good, it's a good pairing with this, with this movie about the end of the world. Yeah, because of the general apocalyptic tone and he just also he's just i think one of the great readers of his own poetry yeah you really understand this poem in a different way after you've heard him read it let's Uh. listen to a little clip of it right now april is the cruelest month breeding lilacs out of the dead land mixing memory and desire stirring dull roots with spring rain winter kept us warm covering earth in forgetful snow Feeding a little life with dried tubers. Summer surprised us, coming over the Starnbergersee with a shower of rain. We stopped in the colonnade and went on in sunlight into the Hofgarten and drank coffee and talked for an hour. Okay, so let's pick up, as promised, with this question of the ethical universe of, of 2012. Um, the movie has this kind of vague attempt to... Um, to have a sort of socioeconomic critique of capitalism or something where the Russian billionaire and a lot of other fancy people that are shown clutching their golden bags and things like that are the people that have managed to 
um, purchase their tickets and are trying to crowd their way onto these arcs, right? So basically right. the idea is you can, you can buy your own survival. Or the argument right? is made by Oliver Platt's character, who's sort of like the, the ruthless pragmatist of the story, um, that the only way that such a project could be done in secret in the one and a half years they had to accomplish it was to sell shares basically in advance. And so those billion-dollar tickets that thousands and thousands of rich people purchased are what caused the human race to survive at all. Right. Which is, I think, patently ridiculous. But like well, the forty the top 47 governments in the world couldn't come up with the money. I mean, <laughs> if, they, if you know the world's ending in two years, can't you just print a lot of money and not worry about inflation? Right. No, one, no one's going to care, you know, when the, when the uh, ties rise. Right. Whether you've got too much currency out there. Right. Or like or whether your budget deficit is too high. Like, who right. cares? The budget yeah. deficit gets erased. It's great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like the idea of the secret email mailings that went out to all the world's richest people saying, don't tell anyone, but the world's going to end. <laughs> right. And it's like the Nigerian king, right? Yeah, telling seriously. you to, to, to send money to his bank. I like the idea that they've just formed a Yahoo group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but a lot of passcodes right, to get right, into that right. one. Um, but, but, then, so, but, that, that, but that's all sort of left. Then, then there's a sort of a populist strain running through the movie as well, where people are suggesting, I forget if it's Thandie Newton's character who plays the daughter of the president, Danny mm-hmm. Glover, who's, who proposes a lottery. Why don't we have a lottery to see who can get on the ships? But that never happens. But at some moments, I guess there must be a lot of Cusack types who are just regular Joes who found out about this because there's all these people trying to press their way onto these arcs that are docked in the Himalayas. Well, except oh, for the, the idea is that one of the arcs was damaged. And so there's this great... You know, there's this great speech that uh, Chewie Chiwetel Ejiofor gives toward the end of it, where uh, where thousands of people are stuck on the docks as as the tidal wave approaches, and Chiwetel gets everyone to agree to open the gates for these poor huddled masses who are left over. But those poor huddled masses are just leftover billionaires. There are billionaires who couldn't get on Arc Three because it was damaged. And okay. so, and so I love the idea that what, uh, what is once a populist strain in the movie just becomes the argument that we should, s- if there are a bunch of billionaires who might die, we guess we should save them too. <laughs> All billionaires are created equal. Right. Well, right. Th- there are some Chinese workers thrown in there too. So I, I also like the idea of the, the people who survived are billionaires, a couple geologists, some random Chinese welders. Right. And, and the um, Queen, Eliz- uh, Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth, right. And her, and her two dogs. Right. Well, there's a, there's a lot of chance, too, for these great actors to be paraded through for just a few seconds who vaguely resemble world leaders. And I love it. I love how the Russian premiere kind of looks like Leonid Brezhnev with black beetly brows. And yeah, the German woman Merkel is kind of Angela Merkel-esque. There. Yeah. There's a fake Schwarzenegger. Yeah, the fake Schwarzenegger fooled me at first. Yeah. I actually thought it was him. It was the kind of thing you could see him doing in a cameo role yeah. like that, right? But yeah, but then he would never do do the part where it is revealed that he doesn't know what he's talking about. Right. We should also, uh, I guess, we alluded to this earlier, but we should make clear um, that in addition to allowing billionaires to get on the arcs, uh, there's also uh, an effort to preserve some uh, species of animals. Oh, yes. This is my this is my favorite uh, single favorite scene. The uh, Cusack and, and company sort of almost made it to the place where the arcs are being built, and they kind of come over a, a, like a hill, and they can and they can see where the arcs are. And then all of a sudden they look up in the sky and there are a bunch of sort of Chinook military style um, helicopters that have suspended from uh, from the bottom of the helicopters are all of these rare animals like giraffe. I guess they're not rare, but it's weird animals like giraffes and a hippopotamus or a rhinoceros. And you kind of get this idea that they're going to try to you know put all of these um, – Animals on the Ark, sort of Noah's Ark style. But I just found it very amusing that space is obviously uh, at a premium. Uh, there are very few humans that are going to survive. And yet someone thought that it would be really important for the, for the world to have giraffes. Right. <laughs> 
God's most useless animal. <laughs> right? It's like, why not cattle? Maybe some poultry? <laughs> but giraffes and rhinoceroses, they take up a lot of space. Also, so clearly the have to design. Animals yeah. is just, it's just right. totally glorious. And then the giraffe figures in later, if you remember, when the Tibetan, we haven't even gotten into the, the Tibetan monk and his, his scientist brother, who are also become part of this final non-billionaire group who manages to press their way onto the Ark and survive. But the moment where the Chinese guy looks up as he's about to, I don't know, be crushed by the gears of the, the hydraulic gears of the ship, and he's inspired because above the grating, he sees the giraffe, the world's last giraffe standing right. there. Right. As I was saying to John, any movie where you can say, oh, yeah, the scene where the Tibetan monk looks up through the grating and sees the world's <laughs> only surviving giraffe, that's, that's not a bad movie. Yeah. Well, I, thought, I, love the, I also love that sometime, somewhere soon, uh, some zookeeper is going to write an outraged op-ed about how in real life you cannot transport animals like that. And they would most <laughs> almost certainly die from the shock. You mean you, you can't custom sew a jacket for a giraffe with which you would suspend him from a Chinook helicopter? And then fly him across the frigid Himalayas thousands of miles? And also, like, I mean, maybe we just, maybe we can write it off as not having seen the entire animal uh, operation, but, like, I saw one of everything. Right. Like, if there's only one giraffe, that's only going to be, you know... Cloning, my friend. In oh, 2012, right. cloning yeah. will have made some huge Great strides. Point. Right. Great point. Well, so as long as John got to mention the airlifted animals, I have to mention my favorite running joke in the movie, which is the thing that had me and John literally crying in the subway ride on the way home from laughter, which is this ongoing theme of the Chiwetel Ejiofor character's great passion for John Cusack's novel, which we see a little stack of at the beginning in John Cusack's apartment. Apparently, he sold less than 500 copies of this book, which John was saying they could at least get some kind of literary consultant for the movie to, to tell them that that's such a low amount of copies that right. it's beneath plausibility. But at any rate, this Oh, this so many first-time novel, novelists would disagree with you, John. <laughs> <laughs> really? That feels like an academic like manuscript uh, number. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's just his book scan number and does not reflect chain store sales. <laughs> I mean, to me, his book felt like a self-published opus when yeah. you see it lying there. It's called, it's called Atlantis Forever. We don't know anything about it except it's a novel called Atlantis Forever that seems to have some vaguely end-of-the-world theme, it, um, and that, which is why John Cusack is kind of interested and obsessed with these questions. It has to do with a space shuttle on which I believe like the last humans alive are sent off into space, and it's described as like naively optimistic about how what the good that people can do under dire circumstances. Um, and so, oh, it, so it's more prophetic than I had. It I, is. I, I well, and I, so in, in a lot of ways, what I loved so much about the fact that Chuetel Giafor keeps reading from this book and quoting it's quoting John Cusack <laughs> at one point in an inspiring speech and then reading it aloud to Thandie Newton while they're sitting on the ark. <laughs> uh, what amazing. I loved about it the most is that it sort of seems like the novelistic equivalent of a Roland Emmerich movie. Like it's a, an apocalyptic, uh, sort of junky book. Uh, with literary pretensions about uh, the end of the world and the good that people can do if they all work together. And the fact that uh, Chuetel Ejiofor chooses it among the books he wants to save from all of human civilization. Oh, yeah, you see it with, like, the Great Gatsby. Right, and, stuff, and the and Odyssey. Backpack. And it just gave me such... It tickled me so much to think that Roland Emmerich was, like, trying to slyly make his case that that junk art should be preserved, too, in case humanity is ever going to die. Like, not just the Mona Lisa and giraffes. Like, bad art should be preserved as well. And and short of showing people actually loading film canisters of Independence Day onto the Ark, this is the best he could do to make that point. <laughs> 
All I can say is I just I could not wait for every new Chiwetel Ejiofor scene to see how he was going to drop some kind of reference <laughs> to the book into the scene, no matter how dire the circumstances. Right. Yeah. Right down to the moment when, as John Cusack is trying to pull this wrench out of the hydraulic gears, that's the only thing that's keeping the spaceship or the Ark from taking off. This this single wrench that's fallen in, and he's about to drown doing it, and it's sort of the ultimate high stakes climax of the movie. And you hear Chiwetel Ejiofor yelling through this closed vault door. It's so and so, whatever his character name is. We met at Yellowstone. <laughs> I liked your book. <laughs> well, to his credit and to the script's credit, John Cusack's response is, "That's great. Get us the hell out of here." <laughs> All right. So, on the notion that bad art should maybe survive forever, let's just end on. I mean, what I think is a, is a pretty pretty round endorsement of this movie. No, aren't we all pretty much able to say that even though this is in almost every way indefensibly bad art that everyone should go see it? Uh, yeah, it's really it's really fun. Yes. I mean, I, you know, I, so I'm reviewing it for the post and um and I debated with myself a lot about what I should do about this movie because there are a lot of things about this movie that are just flat out wrong that are ridiculous or or outrageous or um, you know, morally reprehensible. Um, but at the same time, the process of watching this movie was probably the most enjoyable uh, two and a half hours I've had in a movie theater in as long as I can remember. And I was never once unhappy to be there, and I was never once bored or or upset or annoyed. Well, I was annoyed, but happily annoyed. Um, <laughs> and so in the end, uh, I gave this movie four stars on the Washington Post. Which is um, as many as you can get. Which is in as the many Washington as you Post, can right? get in the Washington <laughs> Post. Um, and I'm excited to see what kind of response it will get. But I guess in the end, I felt like I could not separate or differentiate or lessen the pleasure that I got out of this movie as compared to the pleasure I get out of a great work of art, uh, you know, a great art film. And so, though there is absolutely nothing artful about this movie at all, no matter how amazing the special effects are or how hilarious the performances are, um, it's such a efficient and amazing deliverer of pure pleasure that I just simply could not do anything but give it four stars. I think that's defensible. Yeah. I mean, at, at the screening that Dan and I went to, I mean, people were rolling in their seats. Yes, I mean, people. It wasn't just like you know, the two snooty, cr- it wasn't you know, like snarky slate writers. No. Yeah, it was like everybody in a big theater in Times Square was just having a grand old time. Yes. I mean, sure, like if Roland Emmerich was sitting there, I don't know how happy he would have been because we were we were really laughing at things <laughs> that we weren't meant to laugh at. But whatever. I mean, we it was uh, it was totally fun, and, and and a lot of people were having fun. I think I, based on interviews with Roland Emmerich, I've seen, I think that he does intend for us to laugh at these things, and this touches on something that you, I think, wanted to address, Dana, which is how, you know, does Ro- is Roland Emmerich like a Paul Verhoeven? Is he just a maker of amazing high camp? And is does he know that? And I think based on interviews with him, I think he does. I think he embraces that. Yeah, I haven't I haven't read interviews about this specific movie, but I think just based on the, the, the movie itself, I would have to say that. I just, I just don't think that I don't, ultimately it doesn't really matter whether we're laughing at or with the movie. It's just a really, really fun movie to see. But I think he's sort of reaching for that right now. I think maybe back in Independence Day, he was trying to style himself as the great epic director, but it seems to me like he's just content now to bring joy and destruction to to all who <laughs> right. Well, and that's that's the great advantage of this movie over, say, Independence Day or The Day After Tomorrow, which are both movies in which I um, unironically enjoyed the first half and then was bored and shifty and annoyed through the second half. But with this movie, Roland Emmerich has finally realized. Like, oh, we don't need to see Jake Gyllenhaal fighting off wolves or, um, or, you know, or, uh, or, uh, or humans just realizing that alien ships can be infected with Macintosh viruses. Like, all we really need is to just see the earth exploding for two and a half hours and that's what we get. <laughs> and it made me so happy that he, fi- that he finally gave me what I wanted out of his movies. 
All right, well, Dan and John, this has been a delightful spoiler for a delightful movie. Thank you so much for joining me for this Slate Spoiler Special. Thanks a lot, Dana. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens.